We are back to John 11 this week for the next uh, three weeks following or two weeks after this. So I'm going to invite you to find John 11 this morning. As you're finding that, uh, we're going to be in 17 through 27 uh, as we do as we go forward this morning. Um, We're in this sermon series just looking at John 11 and what happens with Mary, Martha, Jesus, the disciples, and then other people as we get to the end. And the, the focus is a verse that we'll actually run into next week. Jesus wept. And the idea here is that grief and hope actually can meet. What happens when they do, though? And what do we do with that? What we've seen so far and will see as we go through the series, we're going to recap a little bit here, is that what Mary, Martha, and the disciples expected did not match reality. We've kind of already seen that a little bit. We're going to see more of that this week, and it'll continue on. What they expect isn't what actually happens, but we also realize and see through the text that Jesus' reality is better than what they had hoped for and thought would happen. The second thing that we see through this, and this will really come out next week more than this week, so you can anticipate, is that though Jesus knew that his reality was better, he still expressed that human emotion at the time. He wept. Right? And grief and hope can mix together, and we, we need to know what to do with that. And Jesus gives us some idea of what to do there. And then finally, and we'll see this the final week, is that some people were not able to overcome their unmet expectations. They rejected and in some cases outright opposed Jesus in spite of his better reality that he brought. That's what we have seen and will see through this as we continue on. I'm going to go back to verse 4 from last week, then we'll hit 14, and then we'll get into this week's text just to kind of get us back into it. Verse 4, Jesus, uh, when Jesus heard this, that Lazarus is sick, uh, presumably he's not going to make it or it's serious enough that they sent the word to Jesus. Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And then in verse 14, which won't come up on the screen, it says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Now let us go to him. And so what we said last week, and somebody has visualized it out in the narthex, which is genius. I don't know who it was, but good work. They have glorified and believed. We talked about that last week, that if you put plaques on your wall, get glorified above that believe plaque that you have. And that's the order. That the glorified Jesus is the one that sets the tone for what we actually believe in and tells us what it is we believe. Our expectations need to be reset by the signs of Jesus and his glorification. And where we landed last week that's worth our noting is that Thomas actually sets a nice tone and attitude for us, even though his expectations are, if we go back to Judea with Jesus to take care of Lazarus and what's going on there, Jesus, is he's had his life threatened, so let's go back with him that we can die too, I guess. But Thomas is all in. He says, whatever the cost, I am with Jesus. And that should be our expectation as well. Now, today, let's read our text, John eleven seventeen through 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Let's go with uh, verse 27 at the end then, as we start this, walking through this. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Martha gives this proclamation. And I want to give Martha a lot of credit. Just like we gave Thomas credit last week, that's why I wanted to bring him up again. He had the right attitude, even if the wrong expectation. That's, that's a lot to bring, actually, to the table, I think. Martha, I think, had turned her conviction and her belief up to the maximum that she had to offer. Right? What she believed Jesus could do, she's giving the fullest confession of what she actually believes. And I think that's something to credit. I think we ought to recognize that, that that she's cranking up to maximum. This is the best level of belief that she could give based on her knowledge, expectations, and circumstance. And I think if any of us give that to God, we're, we're starting at the right place. You know, what's the most I believe God could do? And it actually led me to a question as I considered this this week. Well, I'll get to the question in a moment. Um, Mary believes this. But sometimes there are expectations, in fact, Almost all the time, more than we want to admit, our expectations are some mix of what God could do, our experience, and what the world around us tells us. Right? It's some combination of those things. And, and if we want to admit it or not, it's probably a lot of combinations of what we've experienced in the world more than what God's given us all too often. And I was thinking about this, this incident I had with somebody years ago, not in this church, not even in this state, in a pastoral care situation. Somebody who was a believer... I was in the hospital with them. They were in for some acute pain. They had chronic pain. It wasn't a life-threatening condition, but it certainly affected their quality of life. They'd been in and out of the hospital a number of times, had to have surgical procedures to help, and they were up for it again. They were probably going to have to have another surgical procedure to help with the chronic pain that had taken over again. And as we ended the visit, I went to go pray with them, and they said, please don't pray for healing. I've had people pray for healing before and nothing happens. Now I have my own beliefs on if God can heal, he can and does. It doesn't always happen though. And there's a lot that we could say about that. We're not going to say it all right now. In fact, we made a couple comments about it last week. But there is something to reveal about this. Not that I'm knocking this person, but I'm suggesting that sometimes our expectations can be beaten down a bit by what we've experienced. Quite a lot, actually. And I think that was the case here. And so we don't even come to Jesus with the fullness of our expectations. We come with really tempered expectations, dialed back. Martha comes with full-on, cranked up, even if they're limited, expectations. And so it led me to this question, thinking about Martha, thinking about other situations or even moments that I've had in my own life. And here's the key question that I want to ask this morning. What are your expectations of Jesus? Where do you believe he can do something, but probably won't. That's a hard question, isn't it? Where do you believe he can do something, but probably won't, where our expectations are dialed back quite a lot? 
In verses 23 and 24, you get this little interchange. Jesus said, you know, Martha, Martha's come out. I think this is the other thing about Martha's conviction. We should recognize Martha is the younger of the two sisters. She actually goes and meets Jesus on the way. She's fired up. If you were here, Jesus, he'd be alive. She goes out and finds him. And so Jesus says, your brother will rise again in verse 23. And she says, well, I know he's going to at the resurrection at the last day. Right? She's got a tempered belief still, but she's still got a belief. It's there. She brings all that she has to offer still. I believe in the resurrection at the end. What's happened has happened, Jesus. Something else is probably going to happen at this point. But just because she brings all that she has to offer, we should recognize that doesn't mean that's all there is for God to give. Right? There's a difference. We can bring all that we have to offer as far as belief, but God's got a lot more to give quite often to fill in reality for us. Many times when our expectations are dashed, I don't know if you get this way, but it can happen to me, we simply think that's the end. We throw in the towel. I expected something, it didn't happen, moving on. Martha has a little bit of that, but she's trying to look beyond to her hope. But Jesus gives Martha something far greater than her current expectations. Jesus offers a hope that will be filled with abundant life beginning now. And it's these words of Jesus that I want to focus on in verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? When it talks about the resurrection, Mary talks about it, Jesus talks about it, there's a lot of different thoughts going on all of a sudden in this text. It's been brought up a few times. There was a widespread belief in the resurrection of the dead in the days of Jesus. We hold to that conviction, by the way, as well, as believers today. They looked to texts like Daniel 12, I'll read it in a moment, uh, Isaiah 26, 19. It was actually built in to uh, a set of prayers that were being used or emerging at this time called the 18 benedictions. Benediction number two has it built into it, which they're still in use today. There are the 19 benedictions now uh, used in some uh, circles of Judaism. It's built into the apocryphal text, you know, that we, we don't consider those authoritative necessarily, but in, informative, certainly. The stuff between the Old and the New Testament, there's, there's a lot about resurrection that pops up in those texts. And uh, both then and now, if you go to Israel today and stand on the Mount of Olives, which is just on the other side of Bethany where Jesus was at the time, I've stood there in the middle of the graves. It's all full of graves that are all facing the Temple Mount, waiting for the resurrection to pop up. It was built in, even then. Resurrection was a widespread belief that in the end, all will rise and be judged. Daniel 12.2 is a, a, a good verse to point out. It says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That was one of the key verses that was focused on for resurrection. And I do want to point out, just as a next to this point that's worth noting, uh, scholar N.T. Bright points out that, interestingly, only those who had culturally assimilated were the people who didn't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees, we saw them a couple months ago. Um, 
only people that had kind of said, well, here's the, here's the beliefs, but it's easier to fit into culture, so I'll, do, I'll just kind of knock off some of these beliefs. It's a good warning to know what you believe, know why you believe, and know the source of your belief, I think. But that's just an aside. What we can see, though, with Lazarus, he'll actually get brought to life next week. What we can see is what Jesus is about to do as a warm-up to what will happen with Jesus. It shows what's going to happen in a small way, and it also is a call to wake up for you and me. And when I used to talk about this, you know, with our confirmation students and other people, whenever I've taught about Lazarus, I used to talk, try and make a hard point that what happens with Jesus is a resurrection and what happens with Lazarus is a resuscitation. But the more I've researched it, the more that's just not enough to, to say it that way. Um, so I'm trying some new terminology with you this morning. Um, and so we're going to call what happens with Lazarus a small R resurrection. Because it is that. And then with Jesus, it's a big R resurrection. Or I have another term that I'll show you in a moment that you can, you can take your pick and take a poll at the end and see what you like better. But resurrection literally just means arise in this case, as if you were waking up from sleep or getting up off the couch. Resurrection, arise. And you can see how that gets played on in John 11. Last week, we saw Jesus talking about, well, Lazarus is asleep. And then the disciples are like, well, if he's asleep, he's just going to wake up. And Jesus is like, no, he's dead, guys. That, that's what I mean. But Jesus is now playing on that by using that resurrection language here, too. He's going to wake up. In a sense, here's the other term, you could call it a super resuscitation that, uh, that Lazarus experiences. Small R resurrection or super resuscitation. And the distinction that we want to make is, when Lazarus comes back to life, he still occupies the same world he did before, and he's going to die again, physically. That's an important thing. We will note that while the text doesn't supply this, I think we can say this, and, and I'm, I want to do something with this, Lazarus probably has a different perspective in the world that he occupies now. Right? How could you not, if you were wrapped in the grave clothes, stuck in a tomb, and had the door shut and was dead for a few days, how could you not wake up and have at least some different perspective of the world? And this sort of thing happens to us. It happens to people who have near-death experiences. They come back. They have different priorities, perhaps. Different perspective uh, of what they have as the gift of life. Our priorities and our perspective of the world that we live in can be changed by the loss of someone, a loved one. Many have experienced that. Or the near loss of a loved one. I know we've experienced that as well. Family dysfunction, broken families and breakups of families can affect how we view the world or any traumatic or life-altering event can change our perspective and our priorities. Sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. We can start to value things differently through those things. But Jesus says, wake up, Lazarus, and he wakes up and he comes out of the tomb and it prefigures what Jesus is going to do not that long after this incident. And Lazarus wakes up, same world, different experience. There's something there that we need to take away from that. That is contrasted then with Jesus, big R resurrection. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but when Jesus is resurrected, there's something different about his body and the properties and the way he exists in the world, and he's never going to die again. Right? There's something, there's something different. He's now living in that kingdom side of things 
that he promises to us at the end with the resurrection of those who are in Christ. His body is flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. It's described somehow the, the life is different and animates, is animated differently. He bears the old scars that he had, but they, he doesn't bear the sin and the weight of the sin of the, of the world that's around him. Lazarus will die again. Jesus won't. There are new rules that Jesus lives under, and that's what he's calling us to, is life under the new rules of the big R resurrection body. I am the resurrection. I'm calling you to wake up, Jesus says, and live in this world differently, even now. The other thing he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Let's give a, uh, I'm going to give an example from The Simpsons. Uh, Bart Simpson, in one episode of The Simpsons years ago, uh, he had a moment where there's an evangelist that comes to town, a preacher, and doing a big revival, and he says to Bart, well, don't you want to convert, basically? I'll shorten it down. And Bart's like, nah, I'm going to be a bad boy for my whole life and then do a deathbed conversion. And the preacher's like, well, that's a pretty good plan. Which it's not, by the way. Because while Jesus does receive the thief on the cross at the end, and I'm not the judge, There is something to be said about the fact that the Bart Simpson method is for self, not for God. Right? He's he's doing that out of fear of the guilt of the punishment, not the love of God. But I want to challenge this a little bit. Salvation has often been presented that simply, hasn't it? That if you accept Jesus, then in the end, you're saved. What happens in between? Right? So it's hard. It's Bart Simpson actually is getting at how we've sometimes presented the story. Just accept Jesus, be okay, and what happens in between? Well, just do a bunch of stuff and Jesus will probably forgive you and you're good to go. That's not the story. That's not even what Jesus is saying here either. Martha, to her credit, I think, is trying to live a now faith. She's trying to understand what Jesus is doing and live now in that. But all she can do is look at the future hope. I'm not sure what to do right now, Jesus. All she can do is look at what's going to come. And we need hope. Absolutely. And for sure, we need hope. But Jesus' response to Martha is, everything I'm doing right now is for a now faith, not simply a future thing that's going to happen. So that you'd be alive now, not just in days to come. And here I think the Apostle Paul gives us some clarity in Romans 8. This will come on the screen, Romans 8.11. He says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, Jesus says, I'm the life. If that spirit is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies now because of his spirit who lives in you. I'm not the life later. I'm the life now, Jesus is telling us. And just as we heard last week, the glorified Jesus is the one we need to look to to reset our priorities so that we would believe his resurrection is the thing that gives us life now so that we can anticipate and live into the fullness of the resurrection later, so that we actually know what it is, so that we actually anticipate it, so we actually live as Christ now. And it's the Spirit that changes us, raises us like Lazarus, and gives us God's perspective, God's expectations, God's reality, instead of living the false reality we live in without Him. Put it a different way, Robert Mounts, New Testament scholar, says not only has the spirit of the Christian been made alive, but in time the body, now under the curse of death, will be resurrected as well. 
The indwelling Spirit is the guarantee of the believer's future resurrection. That is, don't wait for a deathbed conversion. Live life now. That's what Jesus is promising. Lastly, though, in looking at Jesus' words here, I am the resurrection and the life, it's easy if we're not careful to miss the first two words. Jesus says, I am. He doesn't just say, I have the keys to a door that leads to these things, or I have access to it. He says, he proclaims, I am these things. That's a big proclamation. That's a God-sized proclamation. When we live in Christ, we get that through Christ and the abundant life and our vision and our perspective is changed because of Christ, because he is those things. And we become those things. He is the resurrection and life. We become like Christ. As Lazarus was changed, so we take up the way God sees the world and interacts with the world because Jesus is those things. And through the Spirit, he makes us those things. He animates us and gives us life where we otherwise are dead. I've been really challenged by this text this week. We're going to get to next week's. I've been even more challenged by that one. So brace yourself, I guess, if you're looking for expectations. But I've been really challenged by the text this week. Um, I describe myself to people as an um, optimist, borderline Pollyanna, as far as my personality. You know, I see the bright side, sometimes a little too much. Um, but even I have my down moments and down days. I get discouraged sometimes. What I expected is not always reality. Because I'm not unique. I get those too. And I don't know if you're like this ever. Pretty certain we all are. Whether we verbalize it or subconsciously live it out, sometimes we have those moments where expectations didn't meet reality and we think to ourselves, God, I wanted this. I expected this to happen. And it didn't. Are you even there? Are you even listening? Are you even doing anything? Are you active? And then subconsciously is probably the way most of us do this. We then at that point just pull ourselves up and go do it ourselves. Even though it's not what God wanted us to do. We think if God's not going to deliver on what I expected was going to happen, I'll just do it. Which is the wrong attitude, of course. I've been challenged because I've had lots of times over the past years where what I expected and what I expected God to do didn't come to pass. And I've been challenged, especially as I've read through this, to pray a now prayer. Because that's the faith Jesus is giving us, a now faith, not just a later faith. My prayer is this, God, can you reorient my expectations to your reality? That's a humble prayer. Because it's, it's quite often, and, and how much do we put ourselves in the seat of God thinking, God, if you didn't meet my expectations, are you even there? I mean, that's, that's sinful. God, can you reorient my expectations to your reality? And, and it left me wondering, as I've prayed that, and the result has been God has surprised me. It left me wondering, God, how will you surprise me with your expectations in reality if I pray that prayer? And God has. God has surprised me at times, in the recent past especially, with how he's delivered, saying, you expected one thing, but here's actually the reality I'm delivering. And it's better. Mm -hmm. 
As I pray that, I think one of the realizations that I get is probably my expectations were way too low. God has way more than he can do, and we can come just like Martha and deliver all that we have, but we need to deliver it with that expectation that God has more to give than our expectations. Jesus, if you'd only been here, Lazarus would be alive. Jesus has more in store, and he shows them. And, and, and here's the thing, uh, just to end it with something even more challenging. Jesus rounds out his whole statement, I am the resurrection and the life, with probably the most challenging thing he could say. Do you believe this? And he's not just asking it to Martha, by the way, he's asking it to us. I'm the resurrection of life. Do you believe this? 